nobody's first movie has any right looking this good. <laughs> Welcome to episode of Cinenation. My name is Brand Sparks. And I'm Thomas Horton. And here on Cinenation, we discuss film genres and the tropes and stories in them. Uh, but this month, we're not really talking about a genre. Well, we kind of are. We're talking about a director, and sometimes the director's filmography is kind of a film genre itself because we can see tropes, we can see themes, we can see stories that all run throughout their filmography. And we've done this several twice before with Peter Weir and Tony Scott. And we're going to do it this month on who's the director this month, Thomas? This is Guillermo del Toro. Yeah, the famed director who's put out several movies the past few decades. And uh, Thomas, this was your pick. You picked del Toro for our next director series month. And why Why did you want to do del Toro for a month? Uh, he, he's someone I've always thought of as having a very clear voice. Yeah. But have never, like I've seen his films. He's someone who's who's kind of especially for modern directors like been able to go in and out of the studio system yeah um pretty fluidly you know it's like it's like an indie and then a studio film and then an indie and then a you know low budget studio film and so i've always been interested in taking some time to really look all the way through because i have some ideas of what his themes mm. are there, there's some things you know in his in his more recent films in his later films and and he's also someone who I feel like we've we've had conversations several times on this podcast about elevated horror and especially the modern movement of elevated horror and the backlash towards elevated horror. And yeah. and I do feel like he's he's someone who like I feel like every time a new movie of his comes out, people are like, oh, Guillermo del Toro, it's going to be scary. And then it's not. Yeah. And then they get mad. And I'm like, when has he ever been? You yeah. Know, ever that's scary. the whole point. Yeah. So we're going to we're going to do a deep dive and, and figure out you know, kind of where that comes from and, and is, is, has he ever really tried to scare anyone or is that not part of his thesis at all? Yeah. Or, or is it, I mean, it's a different, different definition of, of scares. It's mm -hmm. like, I, I think now in terms of horrors that when they think of, Oh, it's scary. You have to think of like jump scares and like, you have mm -hmm. this like quick adre adrenaline rush. But I think what will go with del Toro is this idea of atmosphere horror in some way and the kind of mm -hmm. overall style of how it can be horrific, but not be terrifying, if that makes sense. Like it's, it's yeah. there's different levels, and and you'll see this. And today, with the three movies we're talking about, his kind of three first films, I think you see that in kind of all of them. It's like they are horrific in some way, but they are they like, oh my god, what's around the corner type thing? Not always. I mean, there's several instances in two of his films, I think, but it's it's not what you usually see with horror, and I mm -hmm. think too with del toro that i think is interesting too is like he's kind of become a filmmaker that's beloved by film fans if that and yeah. i'm not even like just like the the diehard film fans but like he's one of those like he's kind of a household name i think in some way with with like mm -hmm. people who like films not not just like i live and breathe them but people who are just like who are into like even just mainstream stuff it's like in terms of uh, I mean, he. We'll talk about probably later. It's like he was going to do The Hobbit at one point, and that was a very mm -hmm. big deal for many people um, that he was going to be involved in that. Yeah, well, and I think we we're at this period now. You know, obviously with with Parasite and Drive My Car this year, where mm -hmm. it's not unheard of for a a 
you know, foreign language film, a non-English film Mm -hmm. to gain a lot of recognition and Academy Awards and all that kind of stuff. But I really feel like in the, in the, and we, we've had, you know, some, some of those films do such in the Academy Awards previously, but I feel like in the modern age, it was Pan's Labyrinth was really the, yeah. the one that was like, everybody saw that movie. Yeah. Even people who don't see foreign language films. Yeah, no, I agree. I think, I think he's kind of, I mean, I think he's kind of the early adopter of several things with that too. He's being kind of the one that really breaks in the mainstream and not just doing Hollywood films. It's mm-hmm. like you'll we'll bring up people like Ingeritu probably and Alfonso Cuaron. Uh, I know we'll bring up Cuaron this episode. Like there, those are directors who kind of broke into the mainstream pretty big, and then really Cuaron examples that like, didn't really start going back to the Spanish kind of uh, the foreign language international films until recently with like Roma, um, mm-hmm. and so I, I think Del Toro was kind of the one like it did kind of open the doors. Uh, about a decade before it became really big with films like Parasite and then Drive My Car this year. Um, but I think, too, what I think he's been an early adopter of is like how he uses social media in, in t- or Twitter specifically um, to communicate with his audience. I think what mm-hmm. I find fat, he just posted this recently of like uh, like his thoughts on some. I think that's that's the big thing. We're in this era where everything's streaming now and everything's very accessible, I think. But there is a lack of curation. And I think Del Toro smartly uses social media as a way to curate like movies he likes, basically. And people will reach out to him. So like I know recently like someone commented talking about the recent West Side story. And he did a whole kind of tweet series on like why this is this like scene with the dance hall sequence is amazing and why it's like so hard to do. It's not just a crane shot. It's not just a steady cam. Like it's all these different la- layers um, cinematically that Spielberg is doing. And you're like, oh, well, that's great. And then, like, I remember he's talked about Spielberg several times. Of like, he Someone asked him, I think it was like, is Catch Me If You Can the most underrated film of all time? He's like, probably. And he then went into why it's so good and then went into comparing it to 1930s William Wellman movies and you're just like oh that's and that but that's what you kind of need in this in this age of like I think filmmakers need to be more active in terms of putting out their influences I think that's the one thing now is that you can it's like with Drive My Car the director's talking about like he was influenced by Douglas Sirk movies and you're like okay well let me go find Douglas Sirk movies to watch or whatever and I think that's what you kind of have to have in Del Toro um i think people like edgar wright is another example that have like put it out there of like here are the movies i like here's what i think you should see if you like the stuff that i do um it's like when talking about several films today it's like i will talk about hitchcock and we'll talk he, he talks about walt disney as well about how those films were very influential when it came to devil's backbone specifically which in turn also is influential to pan's labyrinth um mm-hmm. So yeah, so so films wise, had you watched all of his stuff before coming into this month, or ha- or have you? I mean, currently, I guess we still we're still going through it, but yeah, I I have not. There's just just a few little gaps. I had mm-hmm. not seen Devil's Backbone was the only one of this week that I had seen previously, and then I think I'm pretty much caught up in the middle, and then I I have never seen Pacific Rim. I've had people. I also Tell have me not it's, seen Pacific it's better Rim. than I thought it was going to be. Uh, so we'll see. 
it's not really like giant robots aren't really my thing but um, but it is del toro so that's the thing it's we del toro so it's, we're gonna touch on it for sure yeah. um yeah i came into this so this week i had not seen any of the movies that we we're talking about oh really so, yeah i had okay. not seen any of the movies it's ones that i'd kind of it they've been on my radar for a while and i years ago he did an interview on the i think now defunct el rey network robert rodriguez's network the director's mm-hmm. chair i was watching it a little bit today too and he talked about and i distinctly remember him just like talking about how horrible mimic was and we'll get into that today of like how much like the the process of making that was and that always that, stuck with me <laughs> that's it's so funny i knew nothing about mimic like legitimately oh, wow. I, I searched Del Toro on HBO Max before I got on a flight, and I was like, I'll download whatever they have Del Toro wise. Yeah. And that one popped up. I was like, Is that? Wait, I have to double check my list. Is that yeah. him? I've never even heard of that one. But like, I, I think I, I texted you, but I wrote it on Letterbox. Like, I without any research into it. Yeah. I finished that movie, and I said, This movie stinks of studio intervention. <laughs> like, yeah, we'll get to it. Yeah. It just has like the grimy feel of like studio yeah. notes all over it. So yeah, very there, curious to hear what you turned up about that one. There's some uh, insane stories with that one that also don't even deal with film, but just are insane stories at that time. Uh, so what I what do you hope to gain this month, Thomas? Because I feel like sometimes we kind of come into this like with an idea of what we think we're going to happen, what we're looking for, I guess, this month. I I i'm really looking to gain a better understanding of his last three films by by revisiting his early films because i i'm one who is a defender of of crimson peak Mm -hmm. and a lot of people aren't that movie got a lot of backlash yeah and and i i'm looking for for more uh you know ammo in my in my (laughs) argument for the defense of crimson peak yeah. I'm also someone who is not a particularly big fan of Shape of Water. So I'm I'm hoping to kind of enrich my second viewing of Shape of Water by watching everything that came before it. Yeah. And then I'm just kind of curious from a from an auteur standpoint how all of that fits into Nightmare Alley, which is one of his probably most unlike yeah. the rest. It it really yeah. stands out. It's like not a monster movie. Yeah. Um but is it? is yeah. is the question and and so that's the kind of thing i think we need to dive into all of it to say like how is this how is this still a del toro monster movie yeah. without being one yeah i think that's when coming into it too going off that of like looking at the themes of his movies and the big thing that always is kind of i think will be the prevalent one is like is man the real monster at the end of the day and i feel like that's gonna come in i think with all three of these movies actually that we're going to talk about today. Um, and that it's, I, I think that's going to run through a lot of his films, the ones I haven't seen or, or I need to revisit. Um, and I'm, I'm coming into it thinking the, cause I know Del Toro has always been like fairy tales. He's very much like mm-hmm. it's fairy tale horror. And so I've always, like with Pan's Labyrinth, that makes sense. The fairy tale aspect. But I, when starting this month with the first film with Kronos, I was like, oh, let me see like how much of this stuff is like fairy tale influence because it's not just like, oh, it's it's not fantasy in the way like they think like a Disney fantasy in some way. I think Disney's gonna be brought up a lot in this. I think he, that's one of weirdly one of his biggest influences. Um, mm-hmm. But I think I think he that Del Toro's like does the dark fairy tale basically. Oh yeah, it's like absolutely. It's like well, I think because fairy tales back in the day like they they there were darkness to them. 
and yeah. they became Disneyfied, Disneyfied in some way. And so Del Toro's like, I think he's going to be more like, let's bring that back to what the kind of the initial idea of these, like sometimes these fairy tales can be dark. They're not just like roses and, 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 uh, and royalty and things like that. And very kind of happy go lucky. There's more to it. There's they're fables that have meaning to them in some way. Right. And I think that's kind of what I'm looking at now. And even films that don't fit into that category, how they fit into that category. Um, so yeah, so that's kind of I guess what we're looking for this month. This month, when talking about Guillermo del Toro, and today, as we said, we're talking about three movies. We're talking about Kronos, we're talking about Mimic, and we're talking about The Devil's Backbone. Um, before we dive into those movies, I guess let's start off how we usually do. Let's start with his early beginnings. Mm-hmm. Uh, so early beginnings of Guillermo del Toro. Guillermo del Toro Gomez was born on October 9th, 1964, in Guadalajara, Mexico, to Guadalupe Gomez and Federico del Toro Torres. His mother, Guadalupe, was a poet who read tarot cards, while his father was a businessman. Uh, in an article in The New Yorker, Del Toro finally described his father as the most unimaginative man on earth. <laughs> uh, the family was also a very strict Catholic family as well. Um, before Del Toro started school, his father actually won the Mexican National Lottery. Uh, his dad built a Chrysler dealership empire with the money and moved the family into a white modernist mansion. Uh, del toro filled his bedroom with comic books and figurines and he began drawing creatures himself consulting a graphic medical encyclopedia that his father had bought uh but his father did not read apparently he just wanted to have in their library to look, <laughs> look good status symbol yeah exactly uh soon del toro became heavily interested in filmmaking uh, he loved horror films like universal horror movies and the hammer horror films at eight years old that's where he began making super eight films the camera his father bought him he ended up making a total of 10 short films during his youth and before his first movie uh he attended a new film school i apologize for butchering this name uh the centro de investigation e estudio cinematographicus uh cinematographus uh i know i butchered that. in guadalajara and after graduating in 1983 he published a book-length essay on alfred hitchcock talk about just the the like, hey, I, I, he basically wanted to understand Hitchcock as much as possible and learned as much on him so he could write a book on him. Uh, <laughs> on a Reddit AMA uh, when he was promoting The Strain, uh, Del Toro stated the reason why he wrote about Hitchcock was because there was a very painful honesty that seeped into his movies about the way he saw the world as a dark and dangerous place. And he was very articulate about his craft, making it understandable for any beginner filmmaker. But more than what he said about his craft, the fact the man, his personality was in his films because he was ultimately very unguarded about the darkness in him. That was the inspiration for me. It's also no surprise that during much of this time, Del Toro was also working on makeup and special effects for years. Mm. One of his favorite makeup artists was Dick Smith, who did such films as The Exorcist, Scanners, and The Godfather and Godfather Part Two. Uh, when he became older, Del Toro reached out to Smith asking him for advice on special effects and makeup because he could not afford a talented makeup art, American makeup artist to work on his uh, future debut feature, Kronos. Uh, around this time, Del Toro launched his uh, company Necro Necropia, a special effects company making low-end boogeyman men for films being shot in Mexico City. Um, in 1987, Del Toro would finally meet Smith in New York, and he actually took his effects, effects course. Um, Smith would become a mentor to Del Toro until his death in 2014. Uh, it was around this time that Del Toro worked on this kind of short-lived 
cult uh, television series called Ora Mikado, uh, means uh, Mark's Time, which became famous for giving starts Del Toro, cinematographer Emmanuel Lubezki, and Alfonso Cuaron. Wow. And he had been trying to make Kronos for, for several years. It took him several years to get off the ground and to find money. Uh, and finally, when he was 29, he was able to make Kronos. So, Thomas, what is Kronos about? Kronos is about a a, a older antique dealer named Jesus, Jesus Greece, who lives with his wife and their granddaughter, who he is very fond of, Aurora. And he uh, kind of accidentally stumbles across this immortality device that was created by this scientist 400 years ago mm-hmm. who used it to live 400 years. Yeah. And it was kind of lost, lost to him after his death. And as he comes across it, he realizes that there are these two men who are looking for it. This industrialist who's kind of like Howard, Howard Hughes esque mm-hmm. and his nephew uh, played by Ron Perlman and Jesus kind of accidentally uses the device which begins turning him into a vampire which he is unaware of until you know yeah it it happens slowly it's not like he's immediately just dracula (laughs) i'm a vampire it (laughs) when when talking about this time or when when you mention it it now looking back it reminds me a little bit of like uh the fly cronenberg's the Mm. fly of how it has that transformation where it like he starts off like he feels younger, he feels more energetic, he he looks younger, and then slowly the horror begins to unveil itself mm-hmm. as he and, the, begins- and there's this question of you know is it going he because both both of those characters are introduced to us as good men as so good the men, question yeah. is you know is is the goodness within them going to win out against the the beast that is being unleashed yeah and I wonder if that was if that was something he was looking at but yeah it's it's. This one I I had never seen before, um, and you said you'd never seen before, correct? I hadn't uh, either. Yeah. Um, and talk about just a debut feature. Like nobody's first movie has any right looking this good. <laughs> yeah, like production design wise, the cinematography, like it's the it re- he really begins early with this world building as- aspect that he becomes very interested in later on in, in his career. Yeah like the mythology of it all yeah absolutely and and it's it's yeah it's wild you know i've always said i i love watching debut films by directors because a lot of times you can just see a lot of their ideas in there just like completely concentrated like they haven't been filtered out Mm -hmm. and it's just kind of all thrown in like this this feels fully formed like his his so i think the thesis that i think of all of guillermo del toro's films is like <clears throat> is this idea of like we should be afraid of mo- we should be afraid of men not monsters yeah and that is here 100 percent. like the villain is just mm-hmm. a man yeah and the vampire is just trying to defend himself yeah. you know yeah um and ultimately the villain is if the villain is ron perlman he doesn't even believe in any of this stuff yeah he's just doing it he's just in it for money he doesn't yeah. even believe in immortality so like that's that's always the within del toro stuff it's it's not the it's the fantastical is not what should scare the us heart, it's yeah. almost it's the mundane you know yeah. it's the, the 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 greed and instead of ghosts and monsters it's it's greed and violence yeah and i think um, that's and that's gonna pop up with another film this week too it's like yeah yeah greed, greed is absolutely is the, yeah is the underlying thing 
and we get you know we get a lot of it kind of through aurora doesn't really speak in the film but we get a lot of it kind of through her eyes yeah a lot of the movie is about her observe observing jesus going through these changes and her being the one that really ties him to his humanity so it's like right there you get this kind of childlike Mm -hmm. uh aspect that is in many 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 of his films as well yeah and even to a point too i think there's something about the films that don't have like a child's perspective he in a way i i guess i can compare him to spielberg with this like spielberg always his camera is always at like a lower kind of angle usually from the eye the view the eye of a child even though there's no child in it I, for something mm -hmm. there's something similar with that with del toro i think that we might see um this month uh but yeah no i agree it's it's an idea of like the monster it's like he takes a genre a vampire movie and makes it not about vampires <laughs> Like you kind of don't realize like, Oh, Oh, he's a vampire. You just thought he was like live, living a, a mortal life. Um, but yeah, Jesus is a vampire. Um, yeah. When we talked about this when it was coming out, um, when he wanted to make this, he goes for me talking about horror films of the era. Cause this movie came out in, uh, 1993. Um, and he says, for me, most of them right now have the big disadvantage of being dehumanizing. As much as I love the genre, I don't feel we are witnessing the best time for horror. People become ciphers, victims to be written off. Most of the time, a film doesn't even dwell into any human issue. It's just a gore fest. It's not even mm -hmm. fun. And when it is fun, it's very raunchy. He adds that he actually wanted his film to be, quote, almost schmaltzy, really sweet and syrupy at times. Yeah. There you go. And, and that's this movie. That's this movie. And that's most of his horror films yeah, are going to be that. He, he just, he knew what he wanted to do from the yeah, start. And he, yeah. like, I'm not saying this is the peak at all. He continues to refine this, but it is kind of wild that he had this like fairy tale horror atmosphere just absolutely nailed in the, in his first movie. Yeah. And the effects are incredible oh. you know the 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 device kind of going into his skin yep. and going inside the device and seeing how it all works and mm -hmm. this the skin effects i mean this really is one of the most polished debut films i've i've ever seen yeah and and he i think he did i don't know if it ended up being so but i know early on like he was designing all of the effects and everything like to get he designed the 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 uh the kind of or the instrument they're looking mm. for like he he kind of designed it all um and yeah it's it's like you said everything's kind of here but the pieces aren't fully together yet like you're seeing an interesting image but it's not mm -hmm. fully the it's not the final piece um but i think he quickly falls into that uh within a few films um so yeah, why I said I love yeah I love the the world building and mythology of this. Uh, I talking about the fairy tale aspect. Why I started noticing this time, and that actually pops the thing in all these three films is he has kind of a prologue, which is very fairy tale like, where it's like you have mm -hmm. a, some some sort of opening section that establishes like the story in some way. Yeah. So in this, this one, it, this one's got voiceover. It's like basically voiceover. like once yeah. upon a time yeah it's it's very much like it feels like i think in this one and then devil's backbone too it's the like once upon a time there was a man blah blah like and it sets up kind of the early beginnings of it's beauty and the beast it's the it's beauty it's it's the once upon a time there is this man who lived in the castle and didn't do this and now he became a beast it's very much mm -hmm. like it's the setup okay here's here's what you need to know before going into the story 
And that's all present in this film to give you the world that you're kind of walking into. And I think it actually like, if I'm not mistaken, it takes place like a few years in the future. I think it's, I think I remember reading it was takes place like 97, weirdly enough. I don't know why. Um, <laughs> so it could be like once upon a time and a time not so distant from ours. It kind of feels like, um, yeah. but uh, so what's, what's one of your favorite parts about this? We talked about kind of the effects, like, is there a scene or something that you kind of like about this film? I love the scene when I think it's kind of the moment you really realize he's a vampire and he's at this ball and yeah. sees a man get a nosebleed and kind of follows him to the bathroom and and the man like leaves and there's blood on the sink and he's like trying to decide if he's about to like lick this yeah. blood off the sink or not. And then another man comes out and like is like, oh, blood and like wipes it up. Yeah. And he's devastated. But then he finds him on the floor. floor. And then it's yeah. like, oh, is he going to drink this blood off the floor? <laughs> um, yeah, I think it, I think it perfectly encapsulates that scene. Kind of what atmosphere, the unique Del Toro atmosphere. There's humor in it. Mm -hmm. There's horror in it. You know, there, it, it's disgusting. Yeah. Um, and it is really the first time we're having to we're seeing Jesus have to make the decision. Like, am I? a man or am I a monster now? Yeah. Like this is really the first time he's, he's had to make that call. Yeah. And, and it's, and it's less like scary than it is tragic, but it's yeah. still very emotional. Yeah. Well, it started off like, it's like he, it, the comedic part is like someone I think hurts himself and he kind of like react, kind of jumps up or reacts to it is what it is of like, mm -hmm. what's that? And then, yeah, he, he stalks the man to the bathroom and you don't know what's going to happen. But mm -hmm. he doesn't know how to be a vampire. He's not going to kill this guy or like right. suck his blood. It's like, oh no, let me just like get what's left, like because this guy had a bad. It was a, it was a, it was a, was a nose. Was it? Well, yeah, what was it? He got hit I thought it was nose. a nosebleed. Yeah, yeah it was nosebleed. Yeah, yeah. Um, but yeah, that is a good, and that's and that's really the midpoint of the movie. That's the midpoint of the film where everything kind of changes. Then you got Ron Perlman, who I think is great in this movie. Like I didn't mm -hmm. know Ron Perlman was in this film before coming into it. But, like, he just brings a sense of comedy to this movie that, like, was unexpected to me. Yeah. I'm very curious, like, what Ron, what was, what was going on with Ron Perlman in the 90s? Because <laughs> yeah. I know he had that show, right? He had Beauty and the Beast. Yeah, but and then the Beast. he did that, like, French movie. Um, You know what I'm talking about? What's that movie called? Give me a second. Oh, City of Lost Children. Is that what you're talking about? Yeah. yeah. That's 95. Yeah. So he did, he did City of Lost Children, 95. Does this. Like, what? I don't, I'm just curious. Yeah. Like, did he tell his agents, like, hey, I want to get in some really interesting <laughs> international films? Like, what's this? Like, I can see just with the way Del Toro is, you know, I can see. I had always assumed it had happened with Hellboy. It was like, hey, who was that guy yeah. that used yeah. to play Beast on TV? Um obviously it happened here but i could see yeah. del toro being like hey i'm i'm a fan of that guy that, that does all that prosthetics work on television yeah well that's what he said because so initially that character was written to be uh, uh he could speak spanish fluently is the idea <laughs> and ron perlman couldn't speak spanish fluently it says perlman tried this but del toro found his ring to be completely unusable so the character was changed to uh uh an american who so who hates being in mexico that what little spanish he speaks is spoken poorly um and i think also too he wrote del toro said he wrote the characters because he in american films like 
Mexican characters, Spanish characters, uh, uh, Latin characters um, were written in stereotypes, basically. Mm-hmm. And he wanted to make the, the American characters or the white characters in the movie stereotypical. So, like, like they're in, like, a cartoon. And so Perlman, like, feels like a cartoon villain in some ways. Like a cartoon henchman. Like, yeah. I find it, it's, it's the, some of my favorite scenes with this. Like, it's when, like, his uncle's calling him and he's just like, what does he want? And, like, yelling and, like, cussing and, like, being mm-hmm. like, shit. And then he's like, hey, how's it going? What do you need right now? Like, he's just, like, he just keeps yelling at, in his, like, little bitty, like, whatever he's staying in. That little room that he's like mm-hmm. staying in. Yeah, and this like abandoned factory. <laughs> yeah, it's in. so yeah. odd. But and he yeah. wants a nose job. Yeah. Like he's saving up for a nose job. It's... Yeah, and he and, and and his nose keeps getting broken, and he's just like, "Not my nose again." <laughs> um, apparently that so that line side thing he'll come in this play later. That was a James Cameron suge- suggestion. Oh, because Cameron Cameron became friends with Del Toro in the making of this, and he suggested, like, "Oh, add a ne- like line where he gets hit in the nose again." But yeah, the this film, I lo- also love the Christmas aspect of it. That's in mm-hmm. the back, and that adds this kind of fairy tale like movie of this Christmas in Mexico. Uh, uh, the like, so the production design, like the big signs they have when on the roof at one point. Um, like it's just it's a really like I said, it's a very it's a raw film, but still incredibly polished for a 29 year old making yeah. this movie. I think uh, the actor playing Jesus is fantastic. Oh, yeah. yeah. And we'll we'll get him back a couple of times. Uh, Ron Perlman, obviously, will get back a couple of times. But Del Toro is definitely, you know, when we're talking all tour theory, he's definitely got cast loyalty. Correct. Yeah. And Federico uh, Lupe is an actor that he's worked with several t- worked with several times um and is amazing in this like and it's it's just the, the the relationship between him and the granddaughter while she's not she doesn't speak that much as you said like that's the heart of the movie like it's it's this it's this tender relationship between this uh, grandfather and his granddaughter mm-hmm. and what he'll lose if this happens or like with all this happens with him um, it's the idea of, like, is he losing his humanity um, the entire time? When someone like uh, uh, the the kind of uncle, the the uh, industrial guy, Dieter, uh, is this kind of, I mean, who's a human who's inhuman in a way. Because mm. he's after, he's just after essentially the need for, he's, his thing is the need for more. And it's like, Perlman kind of said the best, he was just like, he wants to live forever, but he lives in like, a factory like 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 he's basically so like uh uh a recluse basically yeah but he he's wants like to hermetically live sealed into this room yeah. you know yeah. it's like what what is he living for other than you know eternal life the ability to live and and but he's not living that's thing it's like immortality doesn't always mean you're living but yeah it sets up everything kind of perfectly so the film comes out uh it's released it premieres at can may of may of may 17th 1993 and it gets pretty much great reviews um from internationally and in the u.s um it's it's uh uh applauded for the acting and kind of the mythology and the the balance of horror and drama and how it's kind of this very intelligent but charming horror film Mm -hmm. uh in a way and it also wins um kind of the mexican equivalent of the oscars it was like seven awards. There's a bunch of awards that won. Uh, nine. Yeah, 
nine so RELs. So nine RELs, which is the, the kind of the cab the the Mexican equivalent of the Oscars, is what it was. Um, it was only released in two theaters in the U.S. Uh, at wow. first, and then it played. And opening weekend, it played in two theaters, and it, it went to a total of twenty eight screens by the end of its run. Um, okay. After many critics Better. viewed that it felt it deserved a wider release. Absolutely. Two of his films early on, we'll talk about a little bit later, don't get big releases in the U.S. Um, one, there's a reason for. Um, but yeah, so it's it does well, and that gets him his next job, and that is the nineteen ninety seven film mimic uh and so thomas what is mimic about uh mimic is about a a, an insectologist Mm -hmm. i don't know if that's the correct term but i'm gonna use it like it's a correct term uh and an insect scientist yeah and a cdc agent i don't know if he's a doctor is he a doctor deputy, deputy director of the cdc deputy director yeah. of the yeah. cdc dr peter um, man dr peter man is his name there you go peter man who who meet as part of an effort to end this disease this epidemic that has broken out across new york that's being spread by cockroaches yeah. that specifically targets and kills children yeah and so they have to stop it like they're losing a whole generation of children in in new york and so they create this bug that is like a genetic splicing mm-hmm. of termites and praying mantises and cockroaches that is able to mimic a cockroach, get into their colonies, and then distribute this poison that kills them. Mm-hmm. That's the first five minutes of this film. <laughs> then we jump forward two years later. I literally put, man, we're just hopping right in this movie. <laughs> and then it's just three years later. I was like, oh. Yeah, three years later. <laughs> They're married. They fell in love yeah, fell in while love. they were making those cockroaches. Yeah. And now there's some strange goings on. The the Dr. Man with the CDC is kind of drawn into this these weird going ons with his kind of detective buddy played by Josh Brolin. Yeah. Um <laughs> and it leads down into the subway where uh the insectologist has also been drawn recently because she's been delivered a specimen of the the judas bug which is the bug that she created which was supposed to they were supposed to basically self-destruct after they killed off all the cockroaches three years ago so everyone is kind of lured down into the subway tunnels where they will discover that not only is the judas bug still alive it has evolved into these monsters that are looking to overthrow humanity basically yeah um yeah that's yeah and, that's the, the plot. And, and, the, and the thing of mimic is that like it's a it's a bug that is is able to uh it, it's developed lungs basically and so it's the idea that this is able to mimic its prey yeah and a human a human face and, and in the movie like it starts off one way and then it becomes this weird like i won't say chamber piece but it's like it's we're stuck in a subway train like it's what yeah. it is mm-hmm. like it's it's just a, it's an odd little Thing. it's an investigation movie but once yeah. they kind of make the discovery then it turns into like a haunted house movie yeah, almost haunted but in, yeah. in a haunted subway station yeah it's yeah it's the it's the we're trapped it's it almost a, it's like a zombie film we're trapped inside how mm-hmm. do we get out it's night of the living dead in a way and yeah mira Servina stars as dr susan tyler and she's coming off a oscar win uh for um mighty aphrodite that same time yes yeah, two years after she just won the oscar 
Um, so she's kind of she's kind of on a little bit of a, a hot streak at this moment in time. So there's a there's a young kid that kind of becomes involved in this that goes missing down like the subway mm-hmm. uh, area, and his his father is what it is that's looking or is it his grandfather? Might be his grandfather. I think it's his father. His father. Okay, it's a shoe shine anyway, person is what it is. Yeah, Jean Carlo Giannini. Yeah, and so that was initially supposed to be Federico Lupe, but mm. his English was not as great. Is not his pronunciation for English was not as good as they want it to be for that role. But yeah, this movie is you i mean you said it's like it's a it's afternoon cable movie is what it feels Mm -hmm. like yeah it was like story story wise story wise i I feel yeah i would have watched this on saturday afternoon on wgn and been like yeah that's a pretty good movie yeah (laughs) but yeah it's it's a it was a 30 million dollar movie that he got to make and it it just it feels like it's all over the place in -hmm. some way like the visuals are all I think it's like what's so interesting about it, it's like the visuals are all there. But it shows you that like not a director doesn't just like give you pretty images or in a cinematographer or whatever. Like you have to have the pace to it. You have to have a lot of different things. Like it's the it's how you it's what, what shots you choose. Pacing. Yeah, it's a strange paced film. All over the movie. Not only the first five minutes that jump three years, but yeah, then you spend like this movie felt like it was like three hours long. Yeah, you spend so long investigating these things, and then when they find it out and they get trapped in the subway, it feels like you spend so long in the subway. Yeah, after that. But the movie has some Del Toro trademarks in it. You have the idea because mm. he talks basically. I have sort of a fetish for insects, basically. So you have this kind of thing in Chronos, and you kind of have it here. Um, you kind of have again this kind of underbelly, like under underground kind of setting which i think kind of you'll pop up in devil's backbone as well he also has he talks about clockwork like the idea of like time and clocks and things and that's kind of apparent in kind of some of these movies so yeah the movie the behind the scenes of this movie uh is kind of crazy um so it's miramax so you got you got harvey weinstein and bob weinstein involved in this movie i don't know I, I feel like sometimes people like the Weinsteins like blend together and like what they do with certain things. So sometimes I've heard stories about say it's Bob and sometimes it's Harvey that does these things. So mm-hmm. it's probably both. Basically they start seeing early footage of the film and they're just like, what is this? This isn't scary enough. This is kind of what we've been talking about. Like has mm-hmm. Del Toro ever been scary? Um, and they're upset that their fights kind of break out between Del Toro and the Weinsteins saying it's not scary enough. One day, apparently I've heard Bob, I've heard Harvey was so upset with Del Toro that he stormed onto the Toronto set and attempted to instruct Del Toro on how to direct a movie. They would try to get him fired multiple times. The only reason why he wasn't fired is because Miro Sorvino backed Del Toro up. And basically said, he's, he's the one I want to do this movie with. I don't want to work with anyone else. Because what was happening was Del Toro, fearing that he would be fired, was editing the movie constantly. So he was hmm. like, oh, if I ever get fired, I can be like, I made it up to this point. So hopefully they don't change anything. So the actors yeah. are, and he's showing the actors. He's, he's showing Sorvino. And they're able to kind of uh, keep him on. I've heard a story because Sorvino was dating Tarantino at the time that Tarantino also kind of backed Del Toro um, because Tarantino is like a Miramax guy at this moment in time. Mm-hmm. But I, but the problem was too, that he, they kept bringing in like 
second they had a lot of second unit directors in this movie uh, and yes. apparently nobody Del does that anymore yeah del toro yeah del toro apparently fired three of them at one point they brought robert rodriguez in on it and i don't know if mm. he worked on i like, actually directed stuff but he was at one point involved and he talked about it on the director's chair he says that like he was yeah it's like they were nitpicking everything about the script oh do you, do you think this would work like they were so unsure about it and they didn't trust del toro to do it yeah and uh one producer bj rack later compared to making the film as being a prisoner of uh, or being a prisoner of a war camp <laughs> it should, should also be noted I, I texted you when i saw the opening credits it's um yeah. not just the weinsteins are on this but Stuart cornfeld who was lovingly portrayed uh <laughs> but he he worked a lot with ben stiller and ben stiller very uh lovingly referenced him with tom cruise's character in tropic thunder so that should give you a little bit of an idea of the personality cra- clashes that were going on on this yeah, film and i couldn't find it on cornfeld it, it feels like just a very wine st- like, this is one that everyone kind of lists yeah. as like i don't i don't know that, that cornfeld was an issue on this set yeah. but he, he's gonna be a big personality no at matter some point. what yeah so. yeah it's like that, he was on a phone call at some point being like what's going on i feel like um no, but yeah, so basically the Weinsteins just did not like like what was happening uh, on this movie. So what, before I go into my next part with this movie, what do you like about or do you like anything about it? Like, what's kind of what do you think about this film? Um, I mean, you can see like the little pieces of Del Toro here. Uh, you know, you can see where he wanted to build it around this kid. And then they're like, no. So there's there's these hints of like, oh, seeing the world, especially which is especially interesting for as you know as often as del toro has done like seeing something through the eyes of a child this this is specifically an autistic child mm-hmm. and but like he's he's really the one who who knows what's going on but he's he's almost nonverbal, so he's not really able to communicate that he's seeing these monsters specifically based out of this this church so so it's there but then the movie like doesn't commit to really like seeing things through that he's kind of he gets kidnapped and then he's gone for like 40 minutes um and then i i love the design of the creatures but yeah we're in this like cg late 90s cgi where specifically you know the the defense for bad cgi is is low lighting so even when the creatures are they're, they're not often practical but even when they are practical you can barely see them and and you know they they do show you once you know the the scenes where they're like getting into the bodies and they get the the mat this like this like face mask thing that the bugs have evolved to be able to make a human face you're like that is so cool but like in in any of the times you see the bugs out and about you can't even really make the face out because they're 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 trying to like light it so low to not tip off the bad cgi so yeah it it feels just like uh a mishmash of things so apparently a yeah. few things on the set too uh according to del toro uh mira sorvino and jeremy uh northam who plays uh dr peter peter uh man did not get along on on mm. the making of the movie he also apparently wanted initially he wanted andre brower from brooklyn 99 was gonna play dr man but apparently the wine scenes vetoed it because they didn't want to have an interracial family at the end of the movie of having a a white woman a black man and a latino child the latino child that they just take in <laughs> yeah because they're yeah everyone is, that, that is so funny to me because it's just kind of like she just met this kid in the yeah. subway it's and like, then she's just kind of like now. oh oh well his dad's dead this is my kid now <laughs> this is my kid now 
yeah so uh so on top of uh, also apparently i read that john sales was an uncredited writer on the movie um uh, but he was credited in some t- trailers and tv spots hmm. bigger event that's happening in del toro's life at this point has nothing to do with movie making uh his father is kidnapped oh my god so while shooting mimic which was as he said was already a miserable experience del toro's father federico was kidnapped in mexico uh del toro and his family began receiving ransom notes asking for large sums of money uh uh some reports i think it was in the millions basically uh even though del toro was directing a 300 million, or, i'm sorry directing a 30 million dollar film he didn't have enough money to pay for this uh the family yeah. went through three different negotiators and del toro ended up taking the last leg of it at this point del toro went to his good friend james cameron and <laughs> and 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 cameron who had he'd met during the production of chronos who also gave notes on chronos Cameron apparently put him in the car, drove him to his bank, and gave him $1 million in cash. He also gave him the information of a negotiator he knew that would help him bring his father back. I was about to say, with Cameron, I wouldn't be surprised <laughs> if he like had some like special plane that he's yeah. like, we're going to go get him back ourselves. Yeah. yeah. So finally, after 72 days, Del Toro's father was returned. None of their money was returned. And while there were some arrests, the main people were never caught. Um, del toro would then move his family out of mexico except his father stayed and i think del toro's made jokes he's like yeah he he needs to be appreciated because he costs a lot of money uh to save at one point he goes del toro goes i've got to tell you though two horrible things happened in the late 90s my father was kidnapped and i worked the wine scenes on mimic (laughs) i know which one was worse the kidnapping made more sense i knew what they wanted um (laughs) when talking about uh um cameron real quick i'm bring up here uh, he's helped with every one of, he or del toro said he's helped with every one of my movies except mimic where he were where we were sequestered in toronto and couldn't show anyone in blade 2 he gave me a few comments on the cut i've been with him in the editing room for true lies titanic avatar all of them when i was going to do pacific rim he gave me a private tutoring on 3d conversion and on 3d theory can't ask for anything better he's a great friend and an even extraordinary an even more extraordinary filmmaker wait you're telling me that james cameron had input on a on a film sequel that was better than the first Remember? one yeah wow who would have thought <laughs> <laughs> to show you how great of a friend james cameron is the night titanic won 11 oscars cameron tried to literally fight harvey weinstein at the academy awards because of how he treated del toro on the making of mimic oh i love that and not just backstage but in the theater with the oscar in hand and he thought he was about to hit him upside the head with the oscar (laughs) and everyone was telling cameron not here not here and he's like we're being taken back to our seat after winning an award and i was just like i like basically uh, read him the riot act of like because weinstein said oh we're a place for artists and this and he was like really how dare you (laughs) like he was so upset oh, that's amazing so i i just begin i know cameron people have thoughts about cameron but i'm just like that dude's a passionate man is all i have to mm-hmm. say and he and he's gonna he's gonna go to bat for you um uh one of my favorite parts though of the movie uh with mimic the one thing i think is actually good in terms of performance wise i think charles s dutton is actually really funny in this movie yeah as, yeah, as the is. officer like he feels like one of the more like developed characters in the movie yeah and he's he's just kind of introduced as like this comedic side character and then and then kind of surprisingly you know opens yeah. up to us 
Exactly. I'm also not entirely sure why F. Murray Abraham is in this movie. Yeah, Dr. Um, we just kind of lose him Yeah, uh, somewhere in the second act. But he's always always great to lend a little gravitas to, uh, to the proceedings of a film. Yeah. Uh, the one thing, though, I think it was uh, going on cast here. I think it was Norman Reedus's acting debut was in this movie. When is Norman Reedus? He in has this movie? one scene. Uh, I he I think he's I think he's a cop or whatever. At one point, he has oh. one line, and I was like, "That's a young Norman Reedus." Well, and okay, that's gonna become important because Norman Reedus pops up in Blade. He's a character in Blade, a pretty mm-hmm. big part in Blade too. Yeah. Um, but I was like, "What? Oh, Norman Reedus!" And apparently, Doug Doug Jones also in this movie. I didn't see him, but he's also in this film. So. As you can see, you're you're slowly starting to develop his his uh, cast of characters. Mm-hmm. You got Ron Perlman, you got Doug Jones, you got Norma Reedus' appearance. Um, so it's starting to take hold. Also, again, prologue. It's the opening. Like he has a fairy tale prologue of like, here's what you need to know. It's not as narration like a fairy tale, but like, here's this information you know for the main story, basically. Mm-hmm. And it's just a little section of this prologue. Um, so Del Toro would eventually get to do a director's cut in 2010 he said it's not exactly the movie i wanted to do but it's definitely healed a lot of wounds i'm happy with the cut he goes at least now if you don't like it you don't like my version of it basically (laughs) well and i I also feel like he was kind of able to revisit this so not necessarily something we'll talk about because it's not within his film career but he co-wrote a a series of novels and then made directed a, a tv series based on them called the strain which is about a cdc doctor kind of tracking the outbreak of vampirism in new york city yeah but in the way that you would track the outbreak of a pandemic and it feels a lot like this movie just in the way it's like oh cdc investigation and it's like oh this what we thought was a virus is actually this monster and it and a lot of the first season kind of revolves around this random group of people who are forced together by the outbreak and kind of have to learn to work with each other and so the whole time i'm watching mimic i'm like ah he did this so much better with the strain (laughs) and you know he had to when he even when he was writing the strain and then when he got to make it into a show he was just thinking like this is this is my redemption for mimic for sure yeah yeah i'm doing this now this is gonna be my take on it um so yeah when the movie came out it got mixed reviews uh weirdly enough ebert gave it three and a half out of four stars which was somewhat surprising that's that's a weird review because he's not yeah. like he doesn't seem to love anything about it but he's, he's just, just praising like, he just kind of likes it <laughs> yeah he's like he says uh del toro's director with a genuine uh uh visual sense with a way of drawing us in and drawing us into his story and evoking the mood with the very look and texture of his shots he takes the standard ingredients and presents them so effectively that mimic makes the old seem new fresh and scary I don't know about that last part, but I, the first part is true. I think it's very, the text, like he has a, he does evoke a mood basically. Mm-hmm. Um, but the movie, its budget was 30 million. It only made 25.4 at the box office. Weirdly though, had two direct to video sequels, which he was not involved <laughs> uh, in. The, the VHS era and mixed with the Miramax exploitation of the VHS era. era. Yeah. So after this, he's like, well, that was my Hollywood shot is kind of what happens. Um, and that leads to one we'll bring up here. We'll bring up next week, but it leads kind of two things. Um, so he had originally made a script for the devil's backbone, which is his next film. 
I think even before Kronos. Like it was a very early version he had a script of it. And so pretty quickly the opportunity to make Devil's Backbone and Blade 2 came up. And he made Devil's Backbone first. He felt like I need to make a like an indie smaller movie because I need to kind of uh redeem myself not redeem it, but like like help my soul by not just going from a Hollywood to a Hollywood movie. I have to go back one, to my one roots. One for me, one for them. Yeah, I have to go back to my roots. So, Thomas, what is The Devil's Backbone about? The Devil's Backbone is about an orphanage in Spain during the Spanish Civil War that is is kind of out in the middle of nowhere. Most of the kids, most of the boys there are kind of orphaned by the war. And the keepers of the orphanage are also storing some some gold for the for the rebels um and the war is kind of threatening to expand out into the orphanage meanwhile carlos who's a a young boy who's just come to the orphanage for the first time is discovering uh that it may be haunted and is also getting bullied there's yeah there's a lot going (laughs) on but it all works really well um yeah but and and i would so here's the thing too we you, you mentioned crimson peak earlier i think this is an interesting predecessor to crimson peak absolutely because it's an interesting gothic because he cause he talks about in the criterion blu-ray of like how like he wanted to make a gothic horror film and he goes with gothic horror films it's kind of like uh again it's like it's the the ghost is the least scary thing about the movie yeah it's kind of what he said yeah i mean it goes it, it, that that's kind of the tradition of uh, you know, go back to Wuthering Heights, or you know, the the in the tradition of gothic horror, it's the it's often the ghosts are are just trying to serve as a, as a warning. Um, and also, we'll we'll talk about it a little bit more when we get to Crimson Peak. But you were talking about how he kind of came up on Hammer horror, but it's also a very heavy. You can feel a lot of influence of of William Castle horror in, in his works, and a lot of William Castle's films that that was always kind of the, it was like oh scary 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 and then at the end it was like actually the pe- like you know 13 ghosts the the original 13 yeah. ghosts is that way you know in the end spoiler alert for a film that was made in you know what the 50s yeah uh well uh, you know like house on haunted hill it's like it's vincent price like yeah it's yeah it's, it, yeah, it's, it's yeah doing everything just the machinations of, of man yeah and that's that's the same thing with 13 ghosts it's like all the ghosts were, were just trying to warn this family about the uh about a murderous human and, yeah. and so it, it definitely has that that keeping that tradition alive which i think had been gone for a long time in in filmmaking and, and yeah. storytelling as far as like horror but again this is again that goes back to this quote of like he goes horror was kind of not it, it wasn't capturing humans basically and this mm. is what he's trying to do it's like it's a ghost story about people <laughs> as yeah. we're saying um and yeah it's it's a it's where he says this is the one where he like it's the first where i actually like i made a film i wanted to make like he says chronos was good but it wasn't fully how i envisioned it would be but mm-hmm. devil's backbone's the one where like this is the one that it fully like i captured what i wanted to capture from the outset yeah when you're when you're looking at his career and you know in order you could pull you could pull mimic out yeah. And Devil's Backbone feels like the next movie he wanted to make after Chronos. Yeah. And then Blade 2, we'll get to it next week, feels like his studio debut. You know, yeah, it, it feels does. like him putting his stamp on a studio movie. Yeah. So, yeah, but this this is just fantastic. And this this is one I, I had seen before, but watching it 
after Kronos and and after Mimic, but especially after Kronos, you can just see the like, oh, the childlike innocence, the fairy tale of it all, the the you know terrifying aspects of humanity, the idea that you know we need to. It takes a child to see through a monster yeah you know it takes a child to see the good side of, of something scary all of that is is just fleshed out here a little bit more than it was in chronos but done really 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 well and then again and we just you see the kind of the, the humanity is the monsters like man the man is monster like what's the kind of underlying thing with this with the the character of um jacinto Mm-hmm. sorry my spain i sent to the kind of the caretaker the, the kind of the orphan that's grown up in the orphanage basically he, he's after the gold he's after the gold that they're they're stocking for the uh the the, the rebels basically mm-hmm. that's the kind of ultimate sin for this character is that he's it's the greed yeah. and you've seen that now in this amicronos and you'll see it again in films later so yeah, you see, it's where he, where those those themes, and those ideas, I think even the visuals, fully come into his own here. Even the mm-hmm. under, even the underground setting, like that's oh, where yeah. that's where the and and also too, the like the the area where like the where the water is, mm-hmm. that feels like shape of water. Yeah. Like it feels like shape of water. Um, it, it's kind of insane just seeing the visual like motifs that are kind of you're already seeing form yeah. this early that are still going on. Mm-hmm. And we'll talk about this. I think later, but like the greed aspect. Now we talk about it, it's kind of in nightmare alley. That's a big part of nightmare alley. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's all kind of here. Well, and you've got, especially in contrast to mimic, you've got this incredible blend of practical and yeah. visual effects in this movie, just in the way that they pull off the look of, of, of the ghost of yeah. the, the one who sighs. Um, you know, you've got just just fantastic makeup job, but then you've got this like floating uh, blood and like it, it, he looks it, the, the, the yeah. idea of the ghost is that he looks like the, he himself is floating in water. Yeah. And just kind of slowly dissolving whenever he appears. And yeah. and the fact that this follows up, you know, the VFX and, and mimic is kind of stunning you know that this is what they're able to pull off for the monster in this one and it's a lot and this budget is a lot smaller than 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 mimic so the original script apparently had way more magic in it is what it was he was was way more fantastical but he toned it down uh also the the initial idea of like why it was called devil's backbone was there was a mountain chain in spain is what it was that was Mm -hmm. called the devil's backbone there was a myth around it that ever so often the summer the God and devil return to earth and fight over a soul. And the idea was the soul would be Carlos, the orphan, the orphan boy who's been dropped off here. Uh, they couldn't find a mountain chain or the mountain chain that they talked about devil's backbone. So they had to rewrite the script for it. Um, and pa- uh, Patreon Motivar produced this movie. If you saw his, his, oh, his name's, uh, I didn't, producer, I didn't see that. he was a big reason why it's got made. Um, and del Toro says that the movie is pretty much a companion piece to pan's labyrinth. Mm-hmm. yeah absolutely he kind of wrote it as like a two-part thing i think this one is this one's uh, in the middle of the civil war and i think it's like the the last uh, pants labyrinth is post is what it is i think what mm-hmm. he said um but you're seeing those things visually i'll bring this up here when i watch this this time again you or i've never seen it before but when i watch this it's the, again i think a lot of times i think del toro his color palette is always very interesting to me mm-hmm. and this has an interesting kind of amber 
like Western kind of glow to it yeah. a lot of time for the day stuff. Mm-hmm. And it, it when I kept seeing it, the way he frames certain shots, it looks like John Ford's the Western or, or the Searchers. It's oh like yeah, John Ford, it's like, very specifically a, a shot with like yeah, you know the door the doorway. And, and yeah. it's just like black around the doorway, and you've got the desert out. And I'm like, oh, there's there's your Searcher there's shot. There's your Searcher <laughs> shot. But he kind of does several shots like that throughout, like when it's like looking out into the kind of the the desolate desert mm-hmm. when they're when they're leaving the orphanage. But like, yeah, it's visually it's stunning and. Mm-hmm. And I think, like in terms of production design, simplistic but yet beautiful, and like it's kind of desert orphanage that's there. Yeah, and and you know, like you said, it's still pretty simplistic production design, but you've got little touches that that kind of foreshadow things to come. I mean, literally the 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 babies in the jar, you know, we're, we will yeah. have that show back up later on. But just kind of these little touches of the of the grotesque, and even the bomb, like the the imagery of the bomb is, is so it's so interesting. But um, yeah, there, there's those little moments that are are really kind of shocking, and even like you know, in Kronos, you had just that the, those quick moments of the the device like stabbing into yeah. his hand that you're like, like I wouldn't I wouldn't call it a, a gross movie in any way, but it does kind of have like these moments of body horror, and uh, this one's got that the the scenes spoilers I guess, but there's the scene when when all the boys kind of gang up to take on the villain with these spears that they've yeah. carved themselves. And I mean, it, it does, it doesn't shy away from, from showing you what's happening. Yeah. And it's, I mean, it's, it's a very, yeah, it, it promote it, it prompts reaction. And like I said, again, with this one, it's like, it, is it scary at the end of the day? Like, is the, the, there, I think, I think he actually has a jump scare or two in here with the ghost, mm-hmm. but I don't He's got know. Got great atmosphere. I mean, I, I do atmosphere. think it is fantastic. Gothic horror, you know, there's, it, there's no like, there there's never like sprinting down the hallway running from a ghost that's flying after you but there are these amazing moments of like you never know what's around the corner and and you know several times where the camera goes around the corner and and you know with you know, and this i think this is gothic horror it's like yeah. somebody's talking somebody's walking around camera goes around the corner and you don't know if it's going to be a ghost around the corner or or a human that means just as much danger yeah. as as the ghost and there's the great it's the great kind of scene uh when he when he sees the ghost inside the orphanage because the, the orphan the ghost's kind of always been elsewhere mm-hmm. but then it's the hallway shot those long those long hallway shots he has are gorgeous and it's the the ghost trying to get into the closet like get into the closet that oh, Carlos yeah. is hiding in um but no yeah everything again it, but what i think also it's so fascinating about his stuff too with del toro and i think just a, a great director in general it's always like the context and the background it's like having this movie take place at the end of the spanish civil war just adds some texture and layers to it that it he wouldn't have got if it was just like a orphanage out in the middle of the desert yeah. like someone kind of compares like oh it's like suspiria but for boys but i feel like there's a lot more to it than just boys at an orphanage like there's there's he's he's having he's doing more with history and everything that again right. i think he's gonna play with later in some of his films mm-hmm. um but yeah like i said the war stuff like the bombings and stuff and again this movie go with the bombings of i think it says early on but like the opening of the movie has a little bit of a prologue again it's a narration mm-hmm. it's kind of this once upon a time type thing um and so if that's popping up consistently but yeah this is the one that feels like del toro is like fully coming to his own yeah 
any of our scenes or um, i mean i just think the props to the entire cast i think yeah. everybody is is fantastic in this one the boys are all really good the staff you know everybody who kind of plays the teachers and the federico lupe is, is the orphanage doctor federico yeah great again uh Every, everyone's great in this fantastic cast yeah the boy uh uh fernando uh uh yeah fernando telv telv i'm sorry fernando telv is what i what i'm saying um um he originally auditioned as an extra before del toro decided to cast him as the lead and i think he actually him and the and who plays uh uh jamie the bully actually pop up in pants labyrinth later mm. is what it is so the movie Del Toro says the film premiered in North America at the Toronto Film Festival on September 10th, 2001. Oof. Yeah. Oof. Bad timing. And then the next day it's 9-11. And he goes, because of that, we didn't know whether to release it in the States because it's a movie that talks about war and death um, or not. He goes, it was only, we did decide to release it. It was only released in twelve on 12 screens in the U.S., but was a critical hit. Um, in 2010, when he was doing the Criterion kind of release, uh, he said that this, along with Pan's Labyrinth, are his favorite films that he's made. Hmm. Um, and I think Pan's Labyrinth is the one we're like, we'll talk about later, but like it captures the audiences the way that this one did not. Like it, mm -hmm. it gains the level of of accessibility that this one didn't wasn't able to get when it was released. Yeah, uh -huh. I, I didn't hear about this one until... And I mean, I liked him before this. I, I mm -hmm. liked the Hellboy movies and you know, and yeah. then Pads, Pan's Labyrinth came out. But it was specifically when he produced The Orphanage Yeah, that everyone... I remember everyone kind of being like, oh, you like The Orphanage? Del Toro did a, another movie about a haunted orphanage. <laughs> and and that's, that's when I went back and, and saw this one. Different both both kind of gothic horrors the orphanage aims to scare you a little bit more than this one but um but yeah so that that was really that was probably what was that 2010 2007. orphanage came out 2007 uh yeah he's an ep he was yeah, ep on it i've never seen that so i guess i'll i'll have to watch it so we've got these three movies and what are you beginning to see take hold in these three films like tropes so, themes visuals definitely the idea of a of a you know a dark fairy tale um like you said it, it kind of goes along with gothic horror and dark fairy tale i think are very closely tied i think the because of especially in these the idea of children and the the view of a child the innocence of a child i think that's <clears throat> where where you kind of get the fairy tale aspect of it mm -hmm. but that's that's so clear from chronos it's yeah. kind of wild how how clearly that was established and then like you said this idea of like sympathy for the monsters uh and maybe maybe the monsters aren't the ones we should be afraid of that's going to show up time and time again i'll, I'll be interested to see i think you know i think we will all kind of i think everyone can point to pan's labyrinth as the kind of pinnacle of his yeah. not that his not that it's gone down since then but like it feels like the most pure unadulterated del toro yeah and so that's what all these themes are working towards mm -hmm. from from here on but i think i think mimic's really interesting to study as a part of this because if if i didn't know any if i 
if we were in a vacuum right now yeah and i didn't know anything of the rest of his career having seen the way mimic turned out having seen the way the other two t films turned out at this moment right now i would say okay cool so he just never really worked within the studio <laughs> uh, system again or never yeah. made an american film again you know yeah yeah and and the, the quite the opposite is true so very interested in in kind of next week and seeing how doing two comic book films yeah really really goes for him yeah no i agree i agree with all that against the idea of like yeah the the man is the real monster in some way i think also that's the the theme of greed and how greed mm -hmm. can 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 be the root of all evil or whatever with with some of these characters um i think too i'm intrigued to see when looking at the this and and when listening to him talk about devil's backbone about his how his influences will play a part in a lot of his films like i didn't come into this thinking oh like i knew he wrote a book on hitchcock but i didn't think oh hitchcock and disney walt disney or disney mm -hmm. movies would be an influence on del toro as much as they are but when looking at it i think devil's back it's like devil's backbone the idea it's like it feels like if hitchcock made a uh a disney movie in some way yeah. where it's where it's yeah. like um you have the the gothic nature of it but there is this innocence to it um and i'm intrigued to see if that's going to continue with some of these films um mm. because yeah because he, he speaks very high he's like oh yeah like disney movies like you don't realize like everyone who just tries to make it very pretty like they miss the point of like what movies like bambi and dumbo and stuff or, and sleeping beauty what they're kind of all about um and then hitchcock you get that darkness to it so he's able to mix the light and the dark kind of from those two filmmakers or creators and then put his own kind of twist on it so yeah so yeah i'm gonna see i'm gonna see if that continues all the way through if it kind of stops here and may pan's labyrinth i want to see how that goes anything else in these on these three films like what do you like anything else you've taken away that's kind of it no it's it's just it's a it's a fun way to start out i, I wasn't some some two of these i hadn't seen dell's backbone i hadn't revisited in a long time and and knowing what i know about his style now yeah it's it's really interesting to go back to to all of these so you know that's what these months are about we're gonna, we're gonna deep dive who who's the mvp of this period uh federico lupo performance wise yeah i loved loved him in devil's backbone you know just that kind of warm mentor figure so well done yeah i'm yeah and i think and he's in pan's labyrinth as well because I, yep. I haven't revisited pan's labyrinth in a, a decade i feel like so i'm mm -hmm. intrigued yeah. to see how that goes me neither i'm very i'm very excited i haven't seen it since oscars of, of that year of that so. year so almost 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 two decades you know that no big deal um so next week it's a very short episode guys not, not the usual of our two two hour episodes uh Good. but next <laughs> next week we are discussing blade 2 and hellboy i'm excited i haven't watched these two you know i, don't, I haven't seen hellboy in i don't know how long high school mm. probably so i said i'm intrigued to see how the how the stuff we're talking about here that now stuff we now know if we're, we're going to see next week with looking at these two films blade two specifically because i'll say this now what he said on the director's chair is that he went from like shooting devil's backbone and then like three weeks later started working on blade two like it was that short of a turnaround wow between two films so i wonder will there have kind of effects or something kind of kind of lasting effects from devil's backbone into that so i'm 
I'm intrigued. Mm-hmm. But that's all we have for you on this episode. If you're a fan of the show or a new listener, make sure you subscribe to the Nation Podcast so you stay updated on all of our new episodes. You can subscribe to our show on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, Stitcher, or wherever your podcast. And if you haven't already, make sure you rise for your whatever platform to listen to the show on. Yeah, guys. Uh, if Del Toro has taught us anything this week, it's that one of the greatest sins is greed. So don't be don't be greedy with your with your comments. You know, <laughs> share them with the world. Don't be stingy with them. Let everyone see it. Don't be a monster. Yeah. Human. <laughs> um, and finally, don't forget to like and follow us on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, TikTok, all that jazz. As always, Thomas, thank you for joining me. Thank you for having me. And thank you all for listening. Hope you listen to more episodes soon. Bye.